Here, go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Legacy. It's good to see you. Um, I, I see some people I haven't met yet. I look forward to meeting you maybe after the service. But if you're here and you have a Bible or an app, flip over to Jonah 3. That's going to be the text that helps us today as we've been going through this book, which has been a lot of fun. It's a quick little um, sermon series through the book from the very first verse all the way to the end, but it's been very helpful. And today we're going to look at the worst sermon ever preached, right? Um, and listen, I've had, a, I've had my fair share. I've preached for the better part of 18 years, and I know what you're thinking. Luke, that's impossible. You're way too young for that. How, you would have had to start when you were five years old, but no, the truth is, is I've been preaching for almost 18 full years now. And I have hit my fair share of foul balls, right? Um, and I've definitely heard my fair share of really poor sermons. As a pastor, as a communicator that preaches from week to week to week, um, can I just say, in, in more baseball analogy, because I love baseball, I can see the foul balls coming from the cheap seats. There are just some things that you pick up on as a speaker when someone else is speaking that you just think, oh, this is going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. They're doing everything wrong. They're breaking all the rules. We have a preaching team here at Legacy Church. Some of you didn't know that. We have about four or five people that will be up here from time to time. Some of us a lot. Some of us not so much. Some that are learning. Some that are experienced. And we spend a lot of time making sure that we do not preach bad sermons. You're welcome for that. All right? We just finished... Uh, a clinic where over the last month and a half we've had no less, no less than eight hours of clinical work, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of reading on how not to stink when you preach, real life exercises, assessing each other. We want to make sure that we do as good a job as possible because as we plant churches and start new campuses, we want to make sure that we have a deep roster of people who do not stink when they preach. Some of you might be on this team someday. We need to grow the team, right, as we go on. Let me say who would not be on this team. Jonah would not be on our preaching team. He breaks all the rules. He doesn't do a very good job. And listen, whenever I say that he does not do a very good job, what I mean is that today he would get no downloads. No one would like him as he preaches. No one would share it. No one would tweet it. No one would retweet it. He wouldn't connect with you very well. He wouldn't entertain any of you right? No handy little life application points in his preaching, but as bad as his sermon is, he's going to teach us a lot today. We're going to see the gospel clearly today, I think. I think we're going to see Jesus and his work amongst mankind very clearly today. This week, we pick up the story at a very peculiar place. He's already done his time in the living grave of that whale, and we find him now sitting on a beach with goop, all over him from the inside of a whale, but now the goop is mixed in with sand. And if you ever been to a beach, you know what that feels like. So he's gross, and he's distinctly unrecognizable. Most scientists that have studied the story of Jonah and see the historicity in it would say that a lot of his skin, if not all of it, would be bleached. His hair, his eyebrows would be bleached. He'd be splotchy and blotchy, right? He'd be swollen even. Because of the time he'd spent in the gastric juices of a whale, or a large fish, however you want to look at it, at 105 degrees Fahrenheit for three days. So he wouldn't have been recognizable. He'd have been squinting because he hadn't seen sunlight in days. This is where we pick up the story, him just sitting there watching this whale 
his living tomb, swim away as he hears God tell him again to go to a city, a city very much unlike any other city, to preach a sermon very much like any sermon. And as bad as this sermon is that he preaches, I think we need more of it. I'll explain what I mean. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, and if you don't have it ready, we will have it up on the screen for you. Starts off this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. It's always better the second time, isn't it? Isn't it always better the second time? Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Okay? Now, we need to pause here a little bit. Um, because depending on where the whale dropped him off, he would have had about 500 miles to travel to get to Nineveh, give or take 20 or 30 miles, right? Um, so if he went by donkey or camel, it would have taken him over a month, some, sometime around a month, but had he gone by foot, it would have stacked a lot more time on that. Isn't it interesting that God gives him a lot of time to think, a lot of time to just wonder, a lot of time to consider? I like how God does that. And this city that he was walking to, not a normal city. It was an exceedingly great city. And that's what the passage calls it. That doesn't mean that it was a great city to start a new business. It's a great city to go vacation with the kids. It just means size, depth, just the sheer massiveness of this. In fact, the largest city compared to this in that area was Samaria, which is largely where Jonah would have spent a lot of time. This city, Nineveh, was four times larger than that. Four times. That would be like you going to either San Francisco or San Diego. By population and land, and land that, that is about four times Knoxville Metro's size. That's what it'd be like. In fact, the only city that was bigger than Nineveh was Babylon, and it was only bigger by maybe 20 to 30 percent, they, they estimate. So it's a large city. About 600,000 people living in Nineveh. That's, I mean, when you think about it, there's a lot of parallels between Nineveh and Knoxville. Nineveh and Knoxville. Think about it this way. Nineveh was not so much a city. It was more of like a district. It had quadrants inside of it, but there was also sprawl that kind of left the uh, city walls. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the city walls. The city of Nineveh alone was only six or three square miles, so that's eight miles of wall. That's it. It can't hold all 600,000 people. They'd just be living on top of each other. But like most cities, it would push outside the walls. You'd have little burgs and hamlets and little villages and municipalities that kind of feed off the main economy. We have that here, do we not? I mean, our city limits hold what? Last check, about 190,000 people? Knoxville Metro is much larger than that. Throw in Fountain City, Lenore City, Alcoa, Mechanicsville. I mean, you start throwing in these places like Farragut. You start throwing in more places, and you start to see that our metro area is actually just over 700,000 people. It's quite a bit bigger. And this is what he would have walked into. The walls that we looked at earlier, they are 50 foot wide and 100 foot tall. 50 foot wide was just wide enough for them to have chariot races on the top. They did that in Babylon too. Right? That must have been something to see. Especially if you're walking up on it, you've never seen anything like that before, right? A hundred foot tall. That is a basketball court from end to end stood up, right? Uh, the distance between first base and third base. 
It's about 90 feet. That's baseball, by the way. If you're from East Tennessee, I'm referring to the sport of baseball. But if you flip that up and add 10 feet, that's the distance. That's a big wall. And he's walking up to this wall where he knows all this evil is behind it. All this unknown is behind it. All this aggressiveness is behind it. He would have seen many advanced road projects, parks, gardens, public squares, zoos. So when it says three days journey in breadth, it's not most likely talking about how long it takes him to get from one side to the other. That's how we read it today. That's how it kind of comes across in our language. What this more than likely means is that that's how long it took him or would have taken him to saturate every part of that quadrant, every part of that district, through the big streets, through the alleys, through the main squares. That's how long it would have taken him. Let's go on. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Okay, stop. That's the biggest miracle in this book. Not the whale. Forget the whale. This is the biggest miracle that he could preach a bomb, and the whole city gets recovered from destruction. Think about this. Think about what's going on right in this moment. Right? There are approximately 6,000 words in your average American contemporary sermon. 6,000 at the given rate of 150 words per minute, which is common. That's about what I speak, right? He has eight. In the Hebrew language, it's five. Not very long. Notice that he doesn't mention who's going to destroy the city. He doesn't say how it's going to get destroyed. Did you see that he doesn't say how it can be avoided? He doesn't tell them to repent. No quippy little introduction, no fun story, no exegesis of the Bible, no drawing it out and looking at it and blowing up the text and putting it back together, no gospel-centered moment where you look at redemption, none of that, no application points that you can go away and do something with, no cute closing, no props, no smoke, no mirrors, no nothing. It's a bad sermon. You know what Jonah reminds me of? Jonah reminds me of the guys on the street corners on date night, you know? You go downtown in any city USA, doesn't even matter. I've seen him in every city I've ever lived in or visited. There's that guy on the street corner, right, preaching, always with a suit on, always a little bit distant culturally from everybody else, always yelling, no one really listening. And what do you think of when you see that person? Think about it. First thing I think of is, man, you've got to give him props. Because <laughs> I love Jesus and there's no way I'm doing that. No way I'm rocking a suit in front of everybody and screaming to nobody. No way I'd ever do that. You know, I've actually walked up to a couple, just as a side note, I've walked up to a couple of them in my younger years in the ministry, and said, said things like, hey, look, it looks like you, you love the city enough. It looks like you, you want to do good. Do you understand there's like a better way to do this? Do you understand that like, there's like a better way to connect to people? I mean, you can actually learn how to preach, and people will want to listen to you. You understand that, right? Because like no, one, no one's listening to you right now. They're rolling up their windows, and they're going down the street before they cross. That's what's happening now. Don't you know there's a better way? I would say out of the, those that I've talked to, they have all, I'm not saying this is all for all of them, the ones I've spoken to, all of them don't care. They don't care about connecting. They're there to deposit a message that they feel like they've been given. I put Jonah's sermon up there. This is what I feel like is going on in Jonah's story. The miracle of all of this is that a city bowed its knee to it, to this God of, the God, this God of Jonah. A city bowed its knees. God wins a city and a city wins grace. And you know what this shows me? It shows me what we've been talking about from week to week to week, and that is that God is always in control. 
God's in control. He is sovereign. His jurisdiction has no limits. He is supreme. He knows. He controls. He is over all. As Paul says in Romans 11, all things are of him and through him and to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. Think about that. Of him, everything originates. From him or through him, everything is carried out. And to him is where all the glory lands. He is sovereign. He is big and he is very much in control. How do we know that from this story? He controlled the weather. He wanted a storm, made a storm. Needed a whale, appointed a whale. He wants a city, he gets a city. This is what's amazing to me. Let's pick it up in the story again. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and then sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Who knows? And now listen to this verse 9. He's going to sound oddly similar to the captain of those sailors in the ship just a couple weeks ago. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Can we talk about sackcloth for a minute? Because <laughs> it's a little odd, isn't it? This is how they would react when God starts messing with them. Back then, and this isn't a Hebrew thing, it's a Mediterranean thing. Back when God would start to mess with you and deal with you, one of the things that they would do to show that I hear you loud and clear and I am responding in the positive direction is to go into a wardrobe change. We don't do that today. We don't think like, oh gosh, God's really messing with me. I'll be right back. I'm going to go change clothes. We don't do that. We do other odd things in our culture. But that's what they did back then. And why sackcloth? Why not another cloth? Because that didn't feel good. It was abrasive. Made mostly of goat's hair. It didn't feel good. And it's what the poorest of the poor wore, right? They wore sackcloth. Because that's what the homeless people wore. When they wore anything, it was sackcloth. And it was their way of saying, we descend from our pride and we go down to the neediest of the needy. We show ourselves humble. We show ourselves prostrate. We show ourselves dependent on you. None of us are royal. We are all impoverished. We all need your help. And then they would sit in ashes. Again, we don't do things like that. Ashes come from the result of fire or burning something. It symbolizes terminality, judgment, the end of man. A man saying, I've come from dust and I end in dust. Dust mixed with ashes, you would see them sit in it. Job did the same thing. They would throw ashes on themselves. It's just their way of responding. This is how they did it. Fasting, ashes, sackcloth. Let's pick it up in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So why did he change? And did he change? This is something that God said through Jeremiah. We'll put this up on the screen for you. This is another prophet at another time. God says something very important. He says, if, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break it down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. He's talking about Nineveh right here, among other cities, but Nineveh being one of them. 
He's not changing his mind. He's sticking true to his word. This is his character. When a people repent, he will pursue. This is what we see. Now, many believe this moment right here, this verse, this little passage, many people believe this to be the greatest spiritual awakening to have happened in recorded human history. I would agree. If you really step back and look at it, the closest thing we have here in America and our recent, I mean, we're a pretty young nation still, but the closest thing we have in our recorded history is the first great awakening. Happened in the early 1700s, kind of culminated and hit its, its peak around 1740. But by the time 1740 or 41 rolled around, there were 50,000 people that had become Christians. 50,000. 150 churches were planted. Schools, colleges started springing up to do what? To train pastors. To, to follow up. To plant more churches. That's where Princeton came from. Princeton was one of these schools started to train pastors during and after the Great Awakening. Dartmouth, Columbia, Brown, Rutgers, and many more, right? It's amazing what happened. Now, it doesn't sound a lot. 50,000 doesn't sound like a lot because we, we live in a big place with a lot of people in a world that's full of people. But back then in the colonies, there were only 340,000 people. That's 15%. Now, that's massive. 15% doesn't sound like a lot. What 15% will do is it will change a nation. It will change a region. If you take the same numbers... Same math, same ratios, and apply them to the greater Knox metro area. And I'm not talking about the city again, so blow it out. We're talking about Blunt, Loudoun, Union, Anderson, Knox County, our greater metro area. You have over 105,000 people becoming born again, having regenerated hearts. That's enough to fill our stadium two miles from here. Think about that. Visualize what that means. We would need 1,300 new pastors for a healthy situation. 1,300. We would have to plant no less than 300 churches to do a good job. No less. Listen, let me remind you, we have 800 churches in our metro area right now. We'd have to almost grow by almost 50% overnight. This is a big deal. If you were to actually zoom it out and put the same numbers to our country, which I think right now, as of like this month, I think we hit about 320 million, that would be right around 50 million people if the same numbers work for our country. 50, that's Houston, Texas, 25 times. Get the math. Is that unbelievable? That's the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. And as cool as that is, and as cool as it would be if it hit here in Knoxville or even our country, Nineveh was much more drastic. It's much more over the top. Shorter amount of time, an entire city. Much more unique, much more radical. God wins a city. This is a great case of what we call city reaching, which I love. I love city reaching. It's deep in my blood. In effect, this is what that means. We are all modern-day Jonas, okay? Think of it that way. You carry inside of you a message given by God who shows grace even to the unlovely and the wicked, right? We carry that. What, what is our, our message of, though? It's a better Jonah. A Jonah who doesn't just go to a city, but goes to a, a, a world full of Ninevites. It's the gospel. Jesus is a better version of Jonah. He was a prophet that wasn't disobedient. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, not the belly of a whale, and he brings a message for all of mankind, not just one wicked city. It's that gospel, this beautiful, beautiful gospel, and it changes us. And when it changes us, it animates us. It brings motion 
to us. We say this phrase a lot here. We're about to start blasting it in print on everything we have. I, I love it. It says that we are a people by the gospel for the gospel, which takes a little bit of sentence diagramming a little bit if you're not familiar with that kind of language. But we are a people, community, church, because church isn't a service. Church isn't a place. Church isn't a time. It's a people, right? Doing life on life together. We are a people by the gospel. That's what unites us. Not affinity. Not, hey, you're cool, I'm cool, so we can be cool together on Sunday mornings. Not this church is cool because it has coffee and breakfast burritos, right? But we are connected, not by affinity, but by the gospel, which means we might not get along all the time, which means we might not have a lot in common. But the gospel does something brilliant by reconciling us, even in our differences, because we were reconciled to one that we have even more of a difference with, right? So we are a people by the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. We are people by the gospel for the gospel, Now, that's gospel extension, propulsion, replication. That's the gospel going outward. Where to, Luke? I'm glad you asked. To your your cubicle, to the gym, to your classroom, to the hiking trail, to your car, to the pub, to anywhere you go. Every square inch of this city, to the rich, to the poor, to the middle class, upper middle class, lower middle class, to the white, to the black, it does not matter. We carry the gospel that has changed us to every single square inch, every single second of our day. We are a people by the gospel. We are all also a people for the gospel to extend it. So important that you get that. Because this, if that is true, and that's who we are, that is where this story gets real for us. Because we're city reaching and we're city reachers. This is why Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them what I taught you. Right? So what does that mean? That means whenever we teach you, what are we teaching you? What we were taught, which is to go and make disciples of all nations. It just goes on and on and on. But do you see the motion in this, what Jesus was saying? He doesn't say, hey, I, Listen, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so just sit. Sit and hang out. Enjoy family. Make up when you fight, but enjoy family. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, go. There's motion. There's activity. There's animation to this. Listen, let me just warn you real quick. If there is zero concern, Christian, if there is zero concern for your neighborhood or for this city in your heart, then that means you're in a gospel denial for what God has done for you individually. You're in total denial. It means you don't understand it. It means you're very far from it. If you have no concern for your neighbor, and you don't, I, I don't mean the dude lives next to you, but it might be the person that lives next to you. I mean your neighbor. You're everybody. If you have no concern for your city or your neighborhood, then you are living in gospel denial. Let me explain why I say that. In this passage, we see something real beautiful. Some of you caught it. You see a king get up and take his robe off and sit in some ashes. Now, it, it, didn't probably, it probably didn't take a lot of work to do that. Geographically, he didn't have to move very far, right? He stands up, robe off, sackcloth on, ashes up in the air, a lot of wailing, mourning, wasn't eating. We get it. But do you understand that we have a better king that did even more? You see a descent from the Ninevite king. Christ had a bigger descent. He didn't just put on sackcloth. He put on humanity. He put on human skin, more abrasive than sackcloth. He didn't just sit in the ashes that was produced. He came into mankind. He didn't just leave his throne and take off his robe. He left a deeper royalty, the presence of the Trinity itself. He left that. His descent 
was more. His movement was further. This is what it says in Philippians 2. It says that he emptied himself. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why did he do this? Why? For you. Because he loved you. And for his glory. For your sake and for his glory. Why? Because he's a better king. He's a better Jonah. He's a better king. And because we have a better king, we are animated by the same gospel to engage the culture that we live in. Our Nineveh. Our big walls. Our aggressive people. Our big city. We're called to do the exact same thing. Because we are recovered Ninevites speaking to a Nineveh. We're, we're dying men talking to dying men, virtually, as the Puritans used to say. And listen, I love this. I don't think anything rattles my cage, much like city reaching. This is where I get super-duper-duper excited. I love everything about planting churches, starting new networks, connecting people. We have some people in here that have planted churches here recently. We have some people that have come in after a church plant. We have people about to church plant. We have people that are about to go somewhere else. We have five or six in this room right now, and that makes me excited. My only question is, where do we get 60 more of you? Where do we get more? I love everything. I love the equipping. I love the teaching. I love the raising of the money to get people around them and to go. I love everything, even the minutia of it, even the staff meetings that talk about it. I love it. I love everything there is to even, I just love city reaching. It is in my veins. This is the thing, though. So is Jonah. I am Jonah at the same time. He's deep down inside of me, and my biggest temptation is to be a coward in a city full of people that are dying. Listen, there's some reasons that this is a temptation for me. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be very honest with you. Judge me if you want, but I think you're probably with me in some of these. I think a lot of times gospel extension is difficult for me. Taking God's message and applying it to real people in real time, at a normal pace, and just a normal day. I think the reason that's one of the reasons that's hard for me is I feel disqualified. I don't feel good enough to do it. I feel like I have too much black marks in my resume. I feel like Jonah. Jonah had a big black mark in his resume, did he not? Probably felt a little disqualified. I can relate. I feel like I've not done well enough. I feel like I've made too many mistakes. I've broken too many promises. I've hurt too many people. I've said so many dumb things. I've made so many big blunders that I feel like if I were to apply God's message to somebody else, it's presumptuous one, and I feel like I'm staining his story with mine too. So what do we do? Some of you are like that. Some of you that resonated with. So what do we do? You'll resonate with this as well. We fake it. We go and we tell them God's story. We tell them the gospel, but we leave our story out of it, don't we? Why? Because we don't want to stain it with ours. We don't want them to see our trash because it makes God look bad. I thought God changed hearts. Doesn't look like your heart's changed. So what we do is we fake it and we tuck away our real life, hoping that they never see it and hoping that they never ask any questions about it. That's what I do. Listen, of course we want to grow. Of course we want our growth to show that Jesus does change hearts. That when he takes that heart of stone out, puts a heart of flesh in, and causes us to desire his statutes and live, it's something that's a desire of us. And, 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 and that shows through growth. We grow and we grow and we grow. And people see that. And it shows them Jesus more clearly. I get that. We want to do that. But listen, allowing your long laundry list of failures to push the mute button on your life and pull your hand back from the city 
It's to say that you have too much power in the whole process and God doesn't have enough. It's to say this all has everything to do with me and nothing to do with God. Listen, God is just bigger than your dumb decisions. He's bigger than my stupid moves and my weird past. He's bigger than that. And and if God couldn't work with our mistakes and our failures, he just wouldn't have a whole lot left to work with, would he? I mean, I tell myself this, but it's still a struggle. Another struggle that I walk around with is sometimes I feel like I don't know enough. Any of you ever feel like that? You just don't know the right words. You don't know how to answer some questions. So it just kind of mutes us. Jonah, he didn't say very many words. Sometimes I feel like I have less to say than even five words. It's easy to scrape for words and not have them there for you. It's easy to have conversations drop to the floor. (laughs) It's easy to have dead air as we're talking to people about Christ and their life and grace and their struggles and our struggles. It's difficult. Sometimes I feel like my ignorance is going to be exposed. But can I tell you something of almost 18 years of doing this now? Anytime, and I mean anytime, I catch myself engaging somebody from the city, talking to somebody with the city, sharing what grace really looks like, looking at their problems, being honest about mine, there is an inordinate amount of awkwardness in every conversation. It's there for everybody. I don't care who you are. I don't care how gifted you are, how long you went to seminary, how many books you wrote. It is odd sometimes. Sometimes the conversations just drop to the floor, and you pick them up, and you dust them off, and you give it another go, and sometimes it drops to the floor again. This happens, this just happened a couple weeks ago. I'm at the laundromat with Chris Harris, one of our church planters in residence, and there's a guy that I've been preaching to for two years. Two years. I can't think of another way to preach the gospel to this guy. I've done it every way I could think of. And I'm talking to him, but this day, I thought things were different. His eyes got a little bigger, got a little bit more excited. That made me a little bit more excited. I kind of push it into fifth gear a little bit. And I, I really go for the heart. And it's just beautiful back and forth. And right in the middle of it, and I thought, this is the day. I love this. I can't wait for this. We're going to baptize this guy. He's going to live with family of God. I was so excited. He stops me and he says this. Hey, Luke, Luke, Luke. I get all of this. I get all of this. After all, the salamander people told me on YouTube. He believes that there's a race of lizard people that live among humans, and they possess more insight and wisdom than we do. Right, I see your faces. What do you do with that? Conversation drops to the floor. What do I do do with that? It's awkward. I don't know enough. I mean, I know that there's no salamander people, but I don't know enough to grab that curveball and field it and throw it back. I don't know what to do with that. Have any of you ever been in a place like that? You're getting real with someone and then they tell you that they've been raped? What do you do with that? Conversation drops to the floor, dead air, awkward, you don't know what to say. We feel like we need to know more. You talk to your neighbor, you think things are going well, and then you find out that his brother is a pastor, right? Oh, my brother's a pastor, friend, so listen, I've heard it all. Doesn't that step us back a little bit? It does me, just being straight up honest with you. I feel like I don't know enough, but we are called to become fluent in the gospel and to be good communicators. I'm not saying don't know anything. We are called to be good and fluent, but no one in here knows enough. No one in here has enough knowledge and wisdom and experience to get through those conversations and understand this as the Holy Spirit that's doing the work anyway, not your brilliant words and your deep, deep experiential knowledge. Your message might feel short, but listen... Jesus' message goes much deeper. 
even with your few words. Look what he did with Jonah. Ask Jonah. Five words, an entire city. An entire city. Another thing I struggle with, maybe you can resonate with this, is I feel like I don't connect well with people. But irrelevance. I feel like I could be very irrelevant. I think of Jonah marching into the city all bloated and swollen and white and bleached and smelly and goopy. I'm sure the goop was gone. It had been probably a month and a half, but you get what I'm saying. Did not look normal. And sometimes when I walk into a room and I love the city and I want to connect the people in the room, I feel like I'm Jonah. I feel like they see me coming a mile away. Bleached, goofy looking. I don't say the right things. I'm not dressed the right way. And they just discard me altogether. We feel like we don't connect. We see people that are different from us, and we never see the similarities. We only see the differences. We only, Luke, they've got tattoos. I don't have tattoos, right? I don't feel like I can connect to them. Okay, maybe I have a tattoo, but they got like a real one that goes all the way down both arms. Like, they're not ashamed. Hey, tattoos, you know, and I'm not like that, so I don't know if I can connect to that person. Or they shop at Trader Joe's, and I don't. Or they've, they've got Tom's on, all right? They don't even have Tom's on. They've got like the shoes that come after the shoes that come after Tom's, right? They're like three generations cooler than I am, more hip than I am. They're totally different, and I don't even know how to connect to them. They're conservative, and I'm not. They're boring, and I'm not. They have a PhD, and I'm not. Isn't it easy to feel irrelevant really fast? But we're called. Now listen, here's the check and the balance on this. We're called to be good missionaries. We're called to understand our culture so that our message does make sense to people. We are to do that. But again, it's the Holy Spirit that is moving in their heart, not your hipster dress code. Not what school you went to, not how smart you are. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Ask Jonah. He looked irrelevant and never was his message more relevant. And here's the one I'm probably least excited to have as hesitations. Sometimes I feel that God's message isn't strong enough. I feel like his gospel is not strong enough for everybody. Is that okay to say out loud? I feel like sometimes, and I people watch just like you do, and I, I see people that are close to looking like I look, and I think that person can get saved. But if I see someone that's very different from me, I think, ooh, the gospel's strong, but I don't know if that person is redeemable. Don't you think that about some people? Don't you? No, Luke. I, I think God could redeem everybody. Oh, yeah. I bet we could stick you in some rooms and you would change your tune really fast. It is true. I know on paper, just like you do, that God can redeem everybody. But there are some people in my mind that I see them walking or I see them living and I think, man, their life has gone so far in the opposite direction that the odds of them becoming a Christian are minute if they're, if they're at all. And I just think the gospel's arm is just too short. Jonah understood this. Jonah was not preaching his guts out in this city, as you'll find out next week. He wasn't preaching his guts out. He's filling out his day planner. He's checking it off his list. He didn't even really think that a lot of this would work. As Richard Baxter said that I said earlier, he preached as a, a dying man talking to dying men. That's the opposite of what Jonah was doing right here, the very opposite. When it comes to the story of Jonah, he has a lot to do with me. I have a lot to do with Jonah. We're very similar, just like you are. And that's the fact that we resist the call to reach our neighborhood. We press back on city reaching. We don't care about Knoxville. And we think that our goodness revolves around our ability, not God's. We see it as centered on our ability and our capacity and our bandwidth. We can fail at being missionaries. We can fail at being prophets simply because we forget how far grace is plunged to capture us. We forget that. Here's the good news in this story. Jonah had very little to do with Nineveh becoming a regenerated city. 
just like Knoxville is going to, once Knoxville is reached, as Knoxville is reached, it doesn't have very much to do with you, friend. If God wants Knoxville, God gets Knoxville. God got Nineveh, and Jonah's kind of a sideline character. God wants Knoxville. We'll be sideline characters. Now, it sounds weird. It sounds like a weird thing to be preaching about. But look at the story. The truth is, is that God lifts his own weight. This should be good news to you as missionaries. It should be good news to you as prophets, as evangelists to the city. He lifts his own weight. Example, Jonah preaches a bomb and a whole city gets radically saved. That's amazing to me. But I think our deepest fear is that we're not good enough or that our best will never be good enough. Look, I'll be honest with you, your best is never going to be good enough. And that's good news for you. It's, good, it's the way it's supposed to be. Your best, friend, will never be good enough. And that's good news for you. If it was, we wouldn't need the cross, we wouldn't need the empty tomb, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit if your best was good enough. The lie that we hear is that we have to look the part, sound the part, have a pristine history, have it all together, have our A game on. That's the lie we hear for anything to happen around us. Ask Jonah if that's true. Ask him. He doesn't look the part. doesn't sound the part. I wonder if he even spoke the same language. You ever think about that? He stuck out, didn't say much. Look what God did through him. Explain this. A city has changed forever. Listen, when we herald and apply God's message and his gospel to others, it is God doing the work. The Holy Spirit is the one changing hearts. We are vessels. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It doesn't belong to us. We don't have the ability to do that. This is why Jesus said, hey, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Well, what if you're a good preacher? No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. What if you're hip? What if you fit in? What if you know a lot? What if you've got a really clean history? What if you fit the part? What if you are like the perfect prophet and the perfect missionary? No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. We're vessels. Listen, the most empowering thing I can say to you, because I am, again, and I think you've caught it, I'm all about city reaching. I love talking about mission. The most empowering thing I can say to you right now is that your best is simply not good enough. Sounds weird. And I hope you remember it. Your best is simply never going to be good enough. Your weakness is that very thing that God works through to his glory. It's your weakness. Wherever your weakness starts, that's where God's activity and strength begins. Think about it. Are you failed? You have a failed past? Are you culturally ignorant? Are you biblically ignorant? Then you're perfect for city reaching. You're perfect. Are you still learning about the city? Are you still learning the gospel? Are you still learning how to live? You're perfect. You're perfect for city reaching. You're perfect for the church. You're perfect for God. You find yourself in these places. This is why God told Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul is begging him to take away the thing that's making him weak. He's got this thorn. It's making him weak. It's not letting him go full throttle like he wants to go, right? This thing that's holding him back. I don't know what it is. You feel, God, will you take it from me? And he says, no, it's where your weakness is is where I'm going to get the flex. That's a good word for us today. Because think about it. You might not be fluent. You might not know a bunch, but you know what grace tastes like, don't you? If 
you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you understand it. This idea that your sin is more abhorrent, is deeper and more gross than you could ever consider. But his grace in his pursuit of you and his favor is more beautiful than you can ever fathom. All at the same time. You look at your sin, you see how far it dives. You look at grace, you see how farther, how much further it dives. Right? You know that. Who better to bring that to a city than people who have drunk deep from that well? People who can explain grace. It's good for us. We are people on the mend, being renewed day by day. But when it comes to city reaching, this is God's activity. It's God's work. He reaches the dying through the dying. He reaches the wicked through rebellious prophets. He reaches the, the, the ignorant through the ignorant. And he's going to reach Knoxville this way too. And listen, God has every right to blast this city to the ground. He does. Make no mistake. The sin of this city is huge, and the sin of this city is me. I have that sin. You have that sin. Right? My best is not good enough. Your best is not good enough. This weakness, this place where we say, I can't, but you can, that's the most effective way to reach a city, to see a city reached. Listen, I'm going to finish right now, and I'm going to talk to just maybe a couple different groups of people. There's some of you who, I guess when it comes to the neighborhood and the city of Knoxville, you have no heart. You're like, I don't really care. You know, I don't really care. I mean, I care about my family, but I don't really care about anyone else, right? Let me reiterate, you are in gospel denial. I, would, I, I might even submit that you don't even understand the gospel. Because if you understood what it did to you, the recovery project that occurred in your life, the heart surgery that occurred in your life, there's no way you could look your neighbor in the eye and not with some passion want him to know the same Jesus to just radically change you from dead to living. I would say you need to take a good, strong look at the gospel. The fact that, the fact that this, your best was not good enough. And so Jesus came. And so Jesus came out of love for you. Some of you, you do have a heart for the city, but you feel like Jonah, struggling. You don't know enough. You don't fit in enough. Um, you feel like you're going to get rejected. Uh, whatever reason might have resonated, or maybe even more reasons, you look at that. Let me just say the same exact thing to you. Your best is simply not good enough. Relax. It's not on your shoulders. Listen, I grew up with a really deformed and weird theology that said that whenever people walk by, if I failed to preach the gospel to them, then I might be the one that sent them to hell. Anyone ever hear like that? Anyone hear that same thing? Hey, they'll go to hell if you don't preach to them. Not if God has a mark on them, they won't. God's never frustrated. If he wants somebody, he's getting somebody. Well, then why even preach to people? Why even be an evangelist if that's the way it is? Because I want that. I want to be a part of that. It's not something I feel like I have to do. I don't have to be an evangelist to anyone. I don't have to be a missionary or a prophet to anyone. I don't have to extend the gospel. I don't get any extra points for that. But I want to. I want to be there to see the look in their eye. I want to watch that thing happen where they become alive. I want to be a part of that. My best simply isn't good enough, and I'm totally okay with that. Totally okay with that. And then some of you in here, I think, might be struggling with the very fact that you still feel like a Ninevite. Of course, you don't have the, the sackcloth or the ashes on. 
Maybe you've put them on in the past and you've done things, your version of sackcloth and your version of ashes to show God, hey, I think I'm doing the right thing. This is what we're supposed to do, right? I'm supposed to do this dog and pony show and then we're cool, right? I go to church, I write checks, I, I, I do whatever you tell me to do, but that makes us cool, right? Let me just say, if you're in that place, no, it does not make you cool. It doesn't make you okay with God. Your best simply isn't good enough. It's not good enough. That's why Christ came. Christ came for us, the best, living among the worst, so that he could trade his perfect life for our very sleazy schemes. I mean, we were so far from God, we needed a recovery effort authored none other than by God himself. And when that trade was made, we were brought close to God. Your best simply isn't good enough. That's got to be the last thing I say to you. So I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and stand and and we're going to pray a little bit. And as we pray and as the team comes in to lead you in worship, there's, a, there's just a couple things I'd like you to do in this time. This is a time of activity and response in your hearts. This is why Wes said earlier, uh, why, why we reserve this part for the latter, right? And not, not do all the music up front, which I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. It's just not the way we do it here. Because I want your hearts to respond now. I want you to be able to wrestle with this before you get in the car and try to figure out where you're going to eat, Right? So we'll have songs, and, and, we've, and that, that's a great opportunity for you to sing, look at the lyrics, let your heart respond. It's a great time for that to happen. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to wrestle with what we've talked about today in the process of singing, in the process of praying. I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to think of a couple faces. Spend a minute. Who is it in your life that God has obviously put in your path to extend the gospel to? Who is it that is the city to you, your neighbor to you? When does it become real for you? And you, like me, are tempted to be a coward. We're just tempted to just not. Can you be okay with God doing all the work, even through your weakness and inadequacy? Can you be okay with having conversations that drop to the floor? Can you be okay not looking like them, but really, I mean, come on, we all have the same problems, don't we? I don't care what you have on. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care how much money you made. We all have the exact same problems. Can you be okay with that? I want you to pray for that person. Ask God for salvation to come to them and everyone they know. Ask God for this city. Ask God to change your heart to where those prayers are easy for you. Ask God to change your heart to where you love the city because you've seen what he's done for you. God, show me. Show me where I'm not believing the beauty of what you've done for me. Pray these prayers. This is where city reaching begins, here, now. And we've got some elements in the back. We've got, when I say elements, it's just a fancy word. We've got some bread and we've got some juice, but it's a little bit more than that to us. Not not spiritually or mystically, but what it does is it represents symbolically a broken body and a spilt blood. It is basically a visual gospel. So uh, we don't do a good job of explaining this every week, but today as the worship's going, you'll see people kind of milling around and walking around. They're not bored. I don't think they are. I think they're going back there to take communion. So take it with someone you know. Take it with your family. Take it with your spouse. Take it with your missional community. Um, take it with people that you love. But it's a great opportunity to look at, the, look at the elements. This is what Christ has done for me, represented in this moment. And then this moment also represents where we're going, which is another banquet with a different bread and a different juice, right? A different wine. So as you take that, focus on what God is doing in your heart and respond.